Well, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And Brad, uh, I guess we've been in a long uh, series here of first evers for our podcast. And uh, again, we've got another first uh, time guest with us today. Yeah, well, we got uh, somebody I've known for a very long time uh, prior to his time in extension. Uh, uh, kind of, uh, I guess, as far as a general category would be concerned, one of the people that supports our work. And, and uh, a lot of cases, the, uh, the, the folks we talk to directly, farmers, ag professionals, and so forth, don't always see those people who make things work for us and so this is going to be kind of fun because this specific individual is actually someone that most most everybody at least in minnesota agriculture knows yeah you're very uh familiar with this uh this well at least the voice right uh uh tom rothman we've got with us today he's uh he's actually works with us now in extension he's the director of stakeholder agricultural stakeholder communication i believe that's close enough yeah close enough so uh, welcome, Tom. Thank you. It's good to be here. And so, Tom, as we usually do when we have a first-time guest, we uh, we ask the the guest to kind of take a step back and uh, talk a little bit about their background and history and uh, kind of uh, what led you into agriculture, I guess. Well, that's a long time now. You asked me that question decades ago. It'd be short, but now I've uh, spent a lot of time in agriculture and communication, so it's a it's a long history. You want me to go way back or how far back? It's uh, you, you can go whatever you want. I don't care. It's a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, you you were used to doing radio, and this is a podcast. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. All right. Well. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll go way back. I uh, I grew up when I was a really little kid on a on a very small hobby farm, I guess, in the middle of a cotton plantation in Mississippi on the Delta. My father worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He was a plant breeder. He was a, a plant pathologist uh, studying oat rust. Uh, if you ever find Paul Oats anywhere, those were named after him. Um, and I, I kind of got into agriculture way back then, I think. And then we moved up to Mississippi, or from Mississippi to Minnesota back in the in the late 60s, my father transferred to the uh, Cereal Rust Lab here on campus, on the St. Paul campus. And, uh, you know, being the only son of uh, four daughters, he took me to uh, fields a lot and in the greenhouses a lot, inoculating oats and playing with wild oats and watching them move in the water and all kinds of things. And I got, uh, so I, I grew up a lot in St. Paul, but I uh, always had kind of an agriculture, especially research interest as a kid and started at the U in agronomy and kind of moved over into ag journalism and my education took me to a broadcasting school where I was actually going to be a professional baseball cameraman. That was my goal in life. Oh, that'd be fun. So after studying ag journalism for a couple of years, I went to broadcasting school and I was convinced by one of the instructors there that I should go into farm broadcasting. And at the time I said, what's that? And uh, did it anyway, started my career down in Iowa and Waterloo, Iowa for a couple of years at a big radio station down there. and. In 1983, or the end of 82, the beginning of 1983, came to Minnesota and started what is what became Minnesota Farm Network, a statewide radio network, and our sister operation, Minnesota News Network, and our company ran the Twins Radio Network, and for a while, the Gopher Radio Network, and Vikings, and uh, Timberwolves, so uh, spent a lot of time in network radio in Minnesota, 30 years almost to the day before I joined Extension. So that's a good point. So, so when when did you? I mean, time flies. It feels like yesterday you joined Extension or last year, but I'm. It's been a while. Now. Seven years now. Next in just a couple of weeks, it'll be seven years. So time yeah. does fly. And it was so fascinating for me uh, uh, when I went to work in Extension in 1994, five, uh, 1994, and um, 
right away as as a county agent was working in Rice County, which is where KDHL is, yep. which was one of your affiliates. And, right. and uh, um, Tom, I'll have to make a confession. The first time I met you, boy, I thought you were a pretty big deal because <laughs> you were a voice that I'd been hearing since I was a, a teenager. It's like, wow, it, you know, this is this extension gig. This is pretty cool. I'm meeting all these celebrities. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, Brad. But, well, I, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, 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 uh, after we started golfing together and doing some other activities, uh, I realized you're just a person just like the rest of us. That's but, right. Uh, right. Yeah. But it was, it was it was a lot of fun back in those days. You know, when I when I started uh, our network back in 1983, we we started with three affiliates, and I think on our farm side we were up as high as 50 affiliated radio stations in the mid 90s, and our news network had 60 or 70. But um, I don't think I used any resource more than I did extension, especially back in the 80s and 90s, because we covered most of Minnesota from Roseau and War Road down to Austin and Albert Lee and for a time over to Winona and lots of places in between and you know that was back in the county agent days and boy I could get some great radio from around the state all in one broadcast just by calling extension offices all over Minnesota and I don't think anybody used extension more than I did in the 80s and 90s even after that. Well that's a good point actually uh, my observation uh, just through the work that I do, we have lots of partners in a lot of different places, but the part of the, the I don't know if I want to say problem, but one of the realities with a lot of our partners is they tend to be very singular focused. They've got money, time, resources for specific issues. Uh, they can do those things, and then but then they're not mandated to do other stuff. In a lot of cases, the funding goes away or the issue goes away and then the partner goes away and extensions just kind of always been here and that's you know that's i was talking to uh, a friend who works for a state agency yesterday and she was telling me the same thing about you know i won't mention who it was but it was an entity in the state that uh if they get grant funding they show up and then we they, they make a big deal and all of a sudden their grant runs out and we don't see them again for about three years and you know, and she was saying what a, a constant uh, stabilizing presence extension was because we were always here. That's true. And, and, you know, you've heard it and I hear it, too, that extension is different from what it was decades ago with the, the regional concept and the lack of county agents. And, and the, there's a lot of reasons for that. State support is a big one, but it's still a big presence throughout Minnesota. It has a different form than it did way back then, but lots of things have changed and lots of things have had to adapt to different conditions. And you're right, Brad, the extension is still there. It looks a little different, but it is still there. Well, if we didn't change, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we probably wouldn't still be here. Right? You know, the and, and uh, there's no better uh, case study for that than with your background with the media. I mean, look at the changes that have happened in media over the last uh, uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, uh, like, for instance, with radio stations, with the, the deregulation and then the consolidation of ownership. I know we're listening, we've got a lot of people listening to us in rural areas who... In a lot of cases, we've got uh, younger people listening to podcasts who maybe don't remember what radio was like back before things got deregulated, but uh, uh, there was a lot of real local ownership of radio stations that did a lot of local interest and local content, and once the cap got listed on uh, ownership of, of radio stations, 
Um, the, the fastest thing to happen, well, first of all, the first thing that happened is the local owner cashed out and sold to a, to a chain. And then after that, the staff got let go and a bunch of satellite uh, material got uh, simulcasted onto the, uh, the airways and, and away goes the local content. And so uh, there's been changes there. Uh, there's been changes in print media, although the, the thing that I find intriguing about the print side is that uh, probably one of the least affected areas of print media probably is the agricultural print. Uh, we, we still see uh, uh, that hanging in pretty good compared to other stuff. But the only point I'm trying to make is is that everything changes over time. And so the, 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 um, the only solution to that is to make sure you're changing in the correct way to adapt to what those changes are. Well, I got to say, I was very impressed, Brad, that you followed radio that well. That you know what happened in the industry. As you're aware, most my people wife, don't. My wife worked in radio. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah. But it, but you know, radio is still. Um, you know, I get a chance once in a while to to speak to groups on campus, uh, classes, uh, communications classes, and I talk to them about radio is still a, a big deal throughout, especially rural Minnesota. It has changed a lot, like you said, but there is still a, a pretty significant listenership, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are still stations, not as many as there used to be, but there are still stations that focus locally on the community. Yes. You know, we make fun sometimes of things like the obituary hour and uh, school lunch menus and things like that. Tradio. Tradio, <laughs> you bet, trading post. Um, but those are big deals because they pull that community together. That's all part of the community. Any, anybody can listen to, to radio from all over the world right now. But it doesn't mean that much compared to what a local radio station means to that community. There was still that uh, the station in Albert Lee that had the party line, a, a form of the party line going on where people would call in. And it was uh, almost like people were just having a conversation with one another through the radio program host. It was kind of an interesting thing to to hear once in a while well it's it's actually not dissimilar to how extension reorganized where um in general the staff is all still here but we're more specialized in what we do we've got a higher level of expertise and we've kind of moved around to locations that make sense radio actually did kind of the same thing a lot of the really small stations um in a lot of cases, they actually had to move markets. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the there are regional stations that still are very important partners to us in getting our message out. And so I don't want to uh, underplay that, that, uh, that uh, a lot of the, the – uh, I'd say the towns that are 20,000 plus have typically have a radio station that still does local programming that's that's very very important partners to us and some smaller ones too. Oh there are yeah, yeah. and particularly when you move out into other into parts of the state where the towns get smaller yeah right so so Tom, I'm kind of curious uh, thinking back to the Minnesota Farm Network days and you mentioned uh, talking to extension folks around the the region that you were broadcasting in and and uh if you think back i don't know if you want to name drop but are were there favorite folks that you had to interview or can you remember anyone any of the the folks that you like talking to on on the radio oh yeah i can remember quite a few going way back uh, some of the names most of them are retired sadly some have passed but uh I'm sure you know many of them. Howard Pearson up in uh, Thief River Falls was one of my great sources early on in uh, that part of the state. Uh, Art Frame down in southwestern Minnesota. Francis Januszka up in Stearns County was uh, um, a frequent guest of mine. And, boy, I could go on and on with, with some of the names. Um, 
you know, you're going to test me right now, and I, I can't remember some of them, but uh, uh, Dave Chomey, I think, down in Rochester. I think he was yep. in Olmstead County, yep. if I remember right. Yep. Uh, but there were there were a lot of them. I, back then I had a printed copy of all the counties, and I would just rotate them every week and tie them in with uh, the weekly crop updates from the National Ag Statistics Service. And it was actually a pretty good show, I thought, just uh, five minutes every I think it was Tuesday morning. I think the crops, crop, crop reports came out Monday afternoon, if I remember right. And uh, Tuesday morning, we'd just go around the state and find out what's going on in agriculture. As you know, this state is big, and you know we have a lot of uh, uh, weather conditions in northwestern Minnesota that you don't see in the southeastern part of the state and western Minnesota. So it was, uh, it was fun to talk to people in different parts of Minnesota. Hmm. So, Tom, tell us a little bit then, as you've transitioned here, what, what does your job look like these days? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because I, I do what our dean at Extension uh, wants me to do. I'm, I'm in her office, and I, I work primarily in government relations. So I, I do a lot of work throughout the year trying to make sure that staff and elected officials, both on the state and federal level, understand what Extension does because, as you two know, Extension does a lot more than crops and livestock and natural resources, but there's 4-H and some of the family and youth development work. Extension is huge, and a lot of people don't really understand how big Extension is and how many areas that uh, we reach into. So we try to keep lawmakers informed about what it is we do and others. Um, that's a big part of it. I work some with our communications staff and uh, uh, in Coffee Hall on the St. Paul campus, uh, helping them in some of the uh, uh, writing articles or maybe putting together some kind of a broadcast or podcast of something. So my job varies, and I also go out to all the farm shows like I used to do. You know, I go to the so last week or the week before the Cattleman Show and the uh, Prairie Grains up in Grand Forks, and I'll be at the Ag Expo and a few others. So. I still go to all those shows that I used to go as a broadcaster, and it feels very comfortable and fun because you get to see a lot of people that you've worked with for an awful long time. Yeah, I know uh, you put a lot of work into Farm Fest also. And Farm you, Fest. I think this will be my 37th Farm Fest this year, wow. 38th straight Farm Fest. So. And I've long argued uh, because of how recognizable your voice is that we underutilize your voice talents, but uh, we've had you uh, on stage at Farm Fest emceeing the uh, Farm Family of the Year event and doing some other things also. Uh, from Farm Fest, and and uh, that's that's really been a, a nice little gig for us to have you uh, as some of our voice and our face uh, uh, going forward. And I know I've uh, used your talents uh, for doing some radio commercials. We might actually hit you up for Nitrogen Smart here again pretty quick because we're we're uh, close to getting the series finalized, but uh, um, that that's probably something not necessarily part of your job description per se but uh, uh certainly something that uh, that you've got in your background that you can be a great assistance to us and are frequently I, I think that falls into the category of other duties as assigned so i still do a lot of mc work and and that kind of thing moderating panels i i, I enjoy that kind of stuff getting people talking about what it is and i, I will make a pitch for extension people uh like you two that uh when you have extension people on a panel, it makes your job so much easier as a moderator because you, you guys have the gift of gab and you have a lot of knowledge. I've been moderators, uh, a moderator of panels before where 
you get people who don't want to talk, and boy, is that tough. Pulling, uh, pulling answers out. Well, I know, I know before fun. we started recording, you were telling us uh, about a uh, an interview you once did with a uh, a uh, FFA oh, member. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe you want to relate that because I think that's something uh, uh, a lot of our uh, listeners of this podcast will appreciate. You know, doing live radio, live any kind of media, but radio or TV is always risky because you never know what people are going to say. And most of the time, people are good. They don't, you know, say rude things or uncalled for things. But you know, I was interviewing a, um, a, a young man on the St. Paul campus. Boy, this was probably 15, 20 years ago now. And he was a, a young FFA member. And I, I was doing a live interview on a, on a early version of a cell phone to a radio station in central Minnesota and one of our affiliates at the time. And I started out our interview asking him about why he joined FFA. What was it about the program that he was excited about? And he said, I joined because of the girls. And I thought, well, okay. Well, that's, that's fine. I, at least he's yeah, honest. He's a, and, I said, you're uh, an honest young man. I guarantee you he Mom and dad are proud. either. So. <laughs> if we go back to, uh, again, going calling back to your, your days when you were doing a, a lot of the radio stuff, I guess uh, – um, what would what would the typical Tom Rothman day look like? How how much uh, how often were you in studio? And because I saw you out and about a lot, and so uh, that must have changed your life a fair amount with uh, starting to work for Extension, where you're not traveling like you used to. Um, you would not believe how much it changes your life. When I was a I was basically a one man band in my operation for many years. I had some other staff people on our other a new side that helped me out on emergencies, but I was basically a one-man band, and I did uh, 16 individual shows a day, you know, short market updates to longer market updates, news programs, a dairy update, all kinds of programs. And when you're in radio, one thing that you learn early on is that when you have to be on the air at, let's say, 1030, you're on the air at 10.30. You have to be in that chair and talking at 10.30. Not 10.30.01 or 10.30 right. in two seconds. You're there. So, you know, it's stressful when you're traveling around and you have to get back in the studios. And for many years, our studios were either downtown St. Paul or downtown Minneapolis. So you tried to go somewhere and then get through the traffic and park your car on a ramp and run. And, you know, you sit down right at 10.29.59 and you're breathing hard and you're trying not to breathe hard right it was tough i mean it really takes a toll on you after a while to be under deadlines like that all day and you don't realize it until you actually get out of the business and then you can take a breath it, it really is a pretty amazing transformation has has technology changed any of that tom with having to be back in the studio is there any have there been you know technical developments technological developments with helping out with that well i think one of the biggest things that has helped is an iphone or the cell phone I mean, that is huge now because when when i started you'd carry a big cassette recorder around and big microphones and then you take it back to the studio and you would try to edit it with uh razor blades and splicing tapes on reel-to-reel -reel machines and now people can just do an interview on a phone and email it in and it sounds like you're right there but you still you have to remember there still has to be somebody on the other side of that phone call taking your feed and putting it on the air so you still have that little um, glitch in the process but um, you still got to be there. Somebody has to be there when it's time to go on the air. And that's been the biggest change for me, especially if you do a lot of live stuff. If everything your radio station or your radio network does is taped or recorded, I guess we don't use taped anymore. It's kind of an old term. But if it's all recorded, 
then it's different. But if you do live stuff like we did, almost everything we did was live. It's it's much a much bigger time constraint. So we're sitting here recording a podcast. If you look at the whole package of the types of things we deliver, the ways we deliver information these days, um, did you see it coming? I mean, really? Did could could anybody? No, I don't think anybody saw the breadth of information delivery the way that it is now between satellites that you pick up in your car. I mean, that was unheard of back then. You used to have, you know, satellites had to be a fixed thing or to receive a satellite signal is what I'm saying. Had to be sort of a fixed satellite dish. Now you can drive anywhere and pick up satellite radio. You know, that the delivery systems are so much different than they used to be. No one saw that coming. I remember uh, an annual conference, and we were in Duluth, and I don't know, Ryan, if you were, were you here the year we had John Gordon from Public Radio was our the Twitter our thing. Speaker. He gave a they <laughs> they brought him in to give a presentation about the future of I don't know was the future of media or mm-hmm. future media technologies that would yeah. be important, yep. and he gave, basically gave the whole talk about Twitter. Okay, but you have to realize this was so pre-Twitter. I mean, this, this, I have a Twitter, I have a five-year-old Twitter account. This was five years before that. I mean, no one had heard of Twitter. The jokes in the hallway, like, oh, we brought this guy in to tell us about that. In retrospect, he was right on top of it. I mean, he, he kind of got the fact that, that this instantaneous ability to communicate back and forth with people was the direction we were going. Now, I don't think he, he probably didn't realize the extent to which uh, you know Facebook would stop being a site to, to make a date and would turn into these uh, this communication platform and the extent to which individuals could so easily produce their own videos and throw them on YouTube and that would you know I, I think a lot of that kind of stuff um, I think a lot of us were surprised at how it evolved, but uh, I, 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 when I think back about that in retrospect, I'm, I am impressed that uh, uh, we actually did get kind of told uh, where we were headed with this stuff, and maybe we should have spent a little more time taking heed. I don't know. But you know what's, what's interesting? I was listening to a speaker at a convention um, a few months ago, and the the speed of which new technology comes on board now. Think back to GMOs. When they first came on into agriculture, was it 95, somewhere in the mid-90s? Right. How long did it take them to catch on for most of corn and soybean acreage? Not long. No. And look at cell phones. I mean, could you imagine 10 years ago, 15 years ago, what you can do on a cell phone now, the power of these things, how everything is transformed. Now, we, we, we now think of these self-driving cars, and to a lot of us, we think, oh, I'm not going to get near one of those. They're going to run into me. But in 10 years, who knows what that technology will be like? And it's the same with this communication. Yeah. Things change so fast now. Well, it's, it, that's, that's something that I've been kind of uh, trying to harp on people with where we're headed with technology and agriculture because um, – People tend to think of the way we exist, we do business today, the way it exists today, and they're thinking of how is it going to evolve. But if you really look at, you know, to use a well, way overused buzzword, if we use, if we look at disruptive type of uh, technologies in the past, it didn't evolve from one thing to the next. It changed completely. Mm-hmm. And so I keep saying, don't don't think, for instance, the, the area that's kind of my passion is farm machinery and farm tractors. 
you know, don't think that we're suddenly going to put some kind of an auto system into an existing tractor and it's just going to be running out on its own in the field. There's a high likelihood that with autonomy, the equipment doing field work m might not look anything at all right. like totally what we've different. got right now. And, and so from that standpoint, uh, we do need to kind of step back and, and think outside of the box. I guess really our communication stuff is probably the same way. You know, one of the areas that I've found uh, to be somewhat true just by observation, though, um, and I don't mean this uh, uh, to be any kind of an indictment against farmers and agriculture, um, take it in a little good humor, but farmers tend to be, and agriculture tends to be about 10 years behind as far as the ad adoption of technology. Okay. And so I think about when we all had email and uh, we started to say, well, we're going to start sending out email newsletters. And so when we do a meeting, we're going to put on our sign-up sheet, give us your email address, because now we can start start uh, communicating uh, by email. And uh, farmers were pulling out strips of newspaper, or, <laughs> not newspaper, strips of paper out of their wallet. And they were looking at it to copy their email address. And of course, it occurred to me, like, if this guy can't remember his email address, he's not going to be looking at the email I sent him either, you know. And, and uh, similarly to, uh, maybe it's not always 10 years behind, but there's been a little bit of a lag time and the advantage that we have for that is you know it's kind of easy to keep up with it as far as how we we change our delivery methods to to stay in step with that you don't have a lot of wrong moves and and broadband in and is still a challenge as you know in many parts of rural minnesota rural america broadband still doesn't exist or is still pretty poor so once that gets solved and i think it will and, and the system even gets faster. You've heard of 5G technology. Once we have that kind of speed, I think it'll be a lot easier for people to adapt in, in a, lot of, a lot of places. Yeah, we've even looked at that for, for a method by which getting on the Internet, if we were to do a remote meeting or something, to have enough bandwidth, you could just uh, use some kind of server like that that was you know essentially a cell phone that could pick up the signal. And later today, we're actually, you know, by the time this broadcast airs, it'll be uh, it'll be done and in the bin. But we're giving a shout out to doing a webinar later today, uh, looking at uh, seeing how it works with kind of a it's almost a virtual call-in show that we're going to be doing with uh, having a couple of guests on and then having outstate Minnesota folks kind of call in with questions or type in questions, I guess, instead of call in, and uh, they're going to be listening live to the the webinar and then seeing how it goes. So. And, well, and you should you should try to keep that in your memory when the day is done, and then compare it to what's available to you in five years or ten years. If you're doing this again, you'll look back to this day and sure. the end of 2019, and you go, "Boy, remember when we did that primitive?" Uh, that was archaic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right, I, you know, when I started in extension in 1994, the winter of 94-95, we were doing uh, the uh, the vet med department had gotten a grant to do. We, we called it ITV, interactive TV, and it was literally was what we're doing now with Skype and Zoom and those technologies, but it was running over the giant satellite dishes. We had to go yeah. to, the, uh, to the closest VOTAC and set up a television <laughs> camera, 
And uh, so we've been doing something of that uh, uh, of, of that sort for a very long time. It's just that uh, the te technology was just so darn cumbersome. It just it just didn't make it easy to do. But you know, if I look at some of this stuff, like these podcasts, for instance the number of people who are accessing them is just so incredibly efficient for our time with the number of people we're reaching compared to what we used to do traditionally. And I think as, as uh, time goes on and technology gets even better, people won't have to go searching for a podcast or searching for this or how do I connect to your, your uh, webinar. It'll It'll be like uh, some of the technology now where you can just say to uh, Alexis, uh, Alexis, do I have that right? Yeah. Um, you know, I've go read, to my go to my podcast that I want. You know, it, it'll be so much easier. People will access it easily in their car. No fumbling around. No trying to remember anything. No connecting here. It'll be so much simpler in the future. The the, the big thing I think is uh, once you've figured out something that you want to listen to or tune into and you enjoyed that automatic feedback being fed. You know, well, if you like this one, here's another one to listen to. I think some of that's going to make make life potentially make life a little bit smoother and easier as far as finding new content and new new things to listen to and, and engage with yeah one of the areas uh the, and, and i anticipate what kind of feedback we'll get with this podcast tom the areas that i didn't anticipate with this podcast series is the feedback that i'm getting from extension colleagues from other states i uh, i had not anticipated that we would get a listenership of uh, other extension people in other states uh, checking these things out, but we are. And that's a perfect example of the way technology has changed so much. Think of when you're on the radio years ago, you were just on the radio in that market. That's right. And then networks came in, and maybe you talked to somebody like me, we're on a network with a bunch of, of um, radio stations. But now, like this podcast, I can be in India and listen right. to you. And that's, that's an amazing transformation. Yeah, yeah, it is. I guess we all can look forward to... Uh, where the technology is going to take us in the future. No boundaries, definitely, as far as, uh, you know, geographic limitations is where you can, you can reach to. So, But again, I think it gets back to the importance of still doing stuff locally because, you know, you might be heard in India, but what matters is some of the crop advice you give to producers in Rice County or Maurer County or wherever it is. You know, it still gets local. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, that, that uh, we have to, there, there definitely has to continue to be the element of traditional extension work in terms of us information gathering regarding what the issues and the problems are, uh, who our audience is as far as wanting that information, you know, and then from there we can get creative with what means it is that they want it delivered in. But uh, as far as uh, assessing what the problems are, that's probably not going to change a whole lot. And there are still a lot of people, Brad, that want to hear it face-to-face. -face. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And I guess I would say I'm, uh, I've am i now uh, reached the – I'm old enough now. I've reached the point where I'm curmudgeonly enough to say <laughs> that I enjoy delivering things face-to-face -face still. I don't want to completely eliminate my in-person right. meetings because I like to do some of those I like the uh, I like the interaction with the audience yep. I like the feedback uh, and and uh, that that's that format still uh, uh, holds a little interest and you know and actually that that makes me think of uh, of uh, one other concept I think you can uh, you can probably relate to this with your experience on the radio and going back to my experience when I was working in county offices and putting together meetings, 
and that is um, we aren't just simply providing information, we're providing entertainment. And, <laughs> and while clearly working for the university, working for extension, we can't think of ourselves as entertainers, but you definitely can identify with the fact that if something is really boring and really dry, people aren't going to listen. And so from that, that standpoint, you know, we do need to keep things fresh and interesting because people have choices these days on how they spend their time and what they engage in. And if it's they don't find it interesting and at least a little bit entertaining, they're probably not going to listen anymore. That's, a, that's, a, that's right to the point. I get a chance every once in a while to talk to people about podcasting or um, media, and I tell them, you're an entertainer. People who give the evening news, they're entertainers. You know, they have a serious subject to deliver, but they can't do it in a boring way. You know, they have to look good if they're on TV. They have to present well. They're entertaining. And um, as you said, Brad, there's lots of choices out there now, more than there ever were. And I think a podcast and, and a radio program is all about the listener experience from the sound, you know, the quality of the sound to the subject matter to your ability to say funny things or, or entertaining things. It, it's a big deal to, to be an entertainer and an informer. Something I'm thinking about, guys, is is there, is there a possibility that we're going to have too much material? Like we're going to kind of lose your ability to stand out because there's going to be so much available digitally and that, uh, you know, if everyone can tune in and make their own podcast or they can have a webinar or, or a YouTube uh, uh, video or whatever it happens to be, do we run the risk of having too much? And Yeah, I, and I think we're there now. You know, one of the, one of the uh, sore points, I think, uh, areas that uh, journalism deals with right now is everybody can put a podcast together, everybody can do a blog and pretend like they know what they're talking about. Well, information, think about how breaking information is coming from a live eyewitness on Twitter. It's not coming from the news anymore. And that's why we have so much much information that isn't factual a lot, because you don't have the journalists of years gone by who are fact-checking and doing things and making sure it's right. Everybody can access Twitter or or any other uh, uh, way to get the information out. And I think we are at that point where there is too much information and people don't know where to go. They don't know where to go to get, okay, tell me what's really the true story here. Because anybody can have an opinion and anybody can hear that opinion via the internet. But I think there's a there's also a learning process just for, for individuals, for audiences, uh, regarding some of those things. Um, I, I'll give you just a little example on, on my personal life. I guess I've seen, I've seen some things, uh, for instance, like, uh, you know, I'm into old tractor stuff and so forth that you'll see, for instance, like eBay will become real popular, but it was a bubble that burst, you know, and, and there was, there's other things where people irrationally invest in, uh, a technology, uh, a delivery method, and then when they get back whatever it is that they requested, did they listen to it, whatever, after a time they realize it didn't deliver, it wasn't what I wanted, or I overpaid for it, or I, I used information that didn't work, and so forth. There, there, it takes time, but eventually people will start to sort out what is this worth, what works, and so forth. And there'll be a learning curve on that, but... Uh, 
I think eventually the legitimate uh, information sources are going to rise to the surface. There's always going to be stuff out there. I mean, look at the history of agriculture on bogus products. I mean, holy mackerel, that stuff goes back centuries. But, uh, you know, there, and there's always going to be a taker for some of that stuff. But I think uh, right now we're going through a bubble on bogus information, if you will, that uh, people are going to have to figure out on their own how do they sift through what's real and what's not. And they're going to have to get burned a few times before they start deciding things that are legitimate. Well, and, and maybe it is go back to your trusted resources. You know, we talked a lot about extension and the history there. They've We've been here for a long time. Uh, changed over time how we're delivering some of our educational messages, this one being kind of a newer format here. But as consumers of media and agricultural media, you know, we need to look for, for those trusted sources and uh, and consume how, you know, we want to get our, our information. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I didn't probably didn't do a good job of uh, cementing the analogy I made before, but like with eBay and online auctions, paying a lot of money for an item you didn't actually see with your own eyes you know <laughs> not so smart and, and then yeah. right you know and then you get it and you say well this was damaged or this isn't wasn't described correctly or you know uh, there's only so many times people will get burned before they just stop paying you know they start forking out for things that they don't you know that they they, they feel is there's a risk that whether this is actual factual uh, you know, as it's been built and so forth. And so uh, over time, I think people are going to learn how to sort that stuff out. I hope you're right, Brad, because one of the real um, challenges that um, media sees now is that, um, and, and it's not just media, but when, if you go through the Internet and you're searching for something, you tend to gravitate toward those things that you agree with. Right. And that, it's true in a media problem. a lot yeah. that people won't, Look at the other side. Doesn't matter what side of anything you're on, you yeah. tend to gravitate towards something that you feel comfortable with, and that might not necessarily be that factual thing that you hope it is, but you agree with it and you like it and it makes you feel good. And right. so it's a, it's a challenge when you say people need to figure it out. I, I hope you're right. Well, it's that the old the axiom: perception is reality. Yeah, if I believe it. Then it's so. And, <laughs> I, mean, I read it on the internet. I know well, it's true. Right, and uh, I mean, but but at some point that just stops working for you when it really wasn't so. So I mean, we deal with, you know, we deal with with facts and technology and research and so forth and so it's at some point it becomes pretty clear what really is so and what isn't i guess you know the the areas that are going to continue to struggle are when it's thoughts ideas uh you know morals or beliefs, whatever yeah. beliefs it's it's uh you know people there's never where there's never really a correct answer um you know that's probably always going to be this the wild wild west but uh you know it's it's pretty hard to fake scientific research or to bend it to the point where it's uh, it looks like something where it really wasn't eventually people are going to use that find out that wasn't right they're going to get mad <laughs> you know and there's in a lot of cases there's going to be repercussions of that so you know i think ultimately from from our standpoint as purveyors of of uh, information and technology i i think uh, i think we'll, we'll we'll do fine and i think that's why extension communications 
uh, uh, team members like to use research-based education as a line a lot because of what you just said. It's research-based. It's not just uh, not there to sell you something. Yeah, and it gets back to what you know, going all the way back to where we started in this podcast about things changing and evolving. You know, and I've mentioned in several previous podcasts about having read the uh, the county agent story, which is the history of extension in Minnesota, and going back to the activities extension was involved with uh, from its founding, uh, you know, through basically the 1950s, and a lot of that stuff was related to community organizing and and uh, making people's lives better uh, and so forth. And if you think about it, uh, agriculture now is what we kind of define as a mature industry. You know, we're, we've kind of reached, uh, uh, we don't need to do a lot more community organizing. The, uh, the infrastructure's there, the, uh, the institutions are there, the, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, what we really need to do is provide individuals information that's necessary to continue to find their way in it. And that's, you know, the, some of that other stuff is, is in the past. And so uh, we have evolved uh, uh, as any other uh, business would evolve in a maturing industry to figure out what that path is going forward. Well, anything else you guys want to chat about today? Not offhand. Not know. offhand. Looking I mean, forward to a better year in agriculture next year. I've been to a lot of farm shows, and boy, it was a tough year for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, we, as you know. Yeah. Well, it's the general sentiment out there. We never really got around to talking about getting in trouble for uh, chasing geese around the golf course of the Faribault Country Club with <laughs> golf carts, but I guess we'll, we'll save that for another, another day. Another episode or installment here. Well, uh, that wraps up today's installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. Thanks for listening. 